before we get into today's episode, I've created a short questionnaire that will help me get to know you better. Those that fill out the questionnaire will get entered into a draw to win an Amazon gift card. So there's a link in the description for the episode. Click it, fill out the questionnaire, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Now for today's episode. This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Marie Davis who's the CEO of Special Olympics. Marie, thanks for joining me. Not at all, I'm absolutely delighted and honoured to be joining you today, Michael. One of the things that I'm really, really curious about is what Special Olympics does outside of its events because it's so popular, everyone loves seeing the achievements of the athletes. What would you say that Special Olympics does with that? So what kind of change does it make outside of the event? Okay, well, thank you for that question. And there is a couple of things. Yes, Special Olympics is probably most well known for its big games, World War Games, where we would have, you know, 7,000 athletes and 2,000 coaches, et cetera, et cetera. A big event. We've one coming up in Berlin shortly. Uh, and that's one part, yes, of what we do. But really, we're a grass, grassroots organization that uh, exists in over 200 countries and we provide opportunities for people with and without intellectual disability to learn through sport. So very much a grassroots organization and that's what really sets us apart from many other organizations. So it's not really about being um being the best and the first and the winner it's about being your best so how can each person be their very best whether you're a person with intellectual disability or whether you're a person without intellectual disability uh, that wants to uh, be more inclusive and involve uh, people who may seem a little different than than themselves and we do that through the power of sport but we offer a lot of other training um, and opportunities, for example, in health, in uh, education, in schools, through our unified sports uh, programming, our inclusive leadership uh, program as well that uh, we offer. We offer that in a very unified way so that people can learn from people with intellectual disability. Oftentimes what happens is that uh, People with intellectual disability are looked at through the lens of, of disability rather than what they're capable of doing. Uh, and oftentimes that's a result of uh, fear and uncertainty and ignorance and really not understanding. And that's why a lot of our programming is about training. The training we provide in schools, the training we provide to our um, athletes in an inclusive environment, the training we provide to healthcare workers, uh, for example, and in many other areas of uh, society. I get the impression that there are a lot of people that would be classed as ignorant, which I tend to speak of it as it's just something that no one's aware of. It's, it's a not knowing thing. It's they just don't fully understand. They're unaware. They haven't got the education to fully know. But then is that not difficult to actually achieve as in like reduce the ignorance of everybody seems like a pretty big task. Yeah, well, we've seen over and over again in the work that we've done and in some of the research that we have done is when you do provide um, when you do provide training, it does make an, an, an incredible difference. Uh, and I think, again, one of the, um, the sort of misconceptions is um, expecting people who may seem different to just fit in wherever they go, you know, that's not the answer. That is not the answer, clearly. We've got to provide opportunities for people to learn and to grow. And to me, that runs right across the, 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 the society uh, in terms of people learning and understanding their roles and responsibilities and being very clear. Um, 
So, yeah, I think it is possible to uh, change people's behavior and to adapt people's behavior with the right training in, in place. And actually, we're doing a lot of research in that area now and literature review in terms of building a more inclusive mindset uh, in people without intellectual disability. So in the work we do in schools, the work we do, as I said, in training in, in, in healthcare uh, workers and clinicians, etc. And there's a couple of things that we found through this research. The research is very preliminary at the moment, and we still have a lot of work to do to include it in our own curriculum training and development. But it's things like universal dignity. So treating everybody with, um, with respect, treating them as, as equals, and that's a human right. So, so dignity is and universal dignity is, a, is a, an important thing that we should be thinking about when we're designing a curriculum. Empathy, perspective taking are others and moral courage. So being courageous and taking action and, and sometimes what we see in schools is, you know, particularly with young youth that, who, who can be quite vulnerable at times and who tend to follow the gang. If there's somebody that is bullying or doing something to um, to a person who is different, uh, they're afraid to speak up. They don't really have the courage because and sometimes they'll go with the gang rather than go against the gang. But if we can teach people and we are going to try and do this through uh, through our programming, through our sports, to our training, through our training, etc., uh, to to have that courage to stand up and say, well, I don't agree with what you're doing uh, there. And maybe there's a different way of doing it that we have found through our work that this can reduce things like bullying in schools, et cetera, et cetera. Things that our athletes mention all the time has happened to them as they were going through their lives. I imagine creating something that's a bit more inclusive or accepting and things of that nature that would encourage them to be more themselves. I can't even begin to count the number of people that have tried to fit inside the box rather than changing the box a little bit to to kind of fit their their needs is it about trying to understand the individual and then shifting things and adapting things how would you encourage someone to be more adaptable because you might not know from person to person maybe you can't see their disability for want of a better expression maybe it's hard to actually understand how would you help someone be more understanding? I think taking the time to discuss and talk to people and to have people understand each other and understand that, you know, it, 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 can, it can take some time, it can take some training, but that you can do it. And it's that sort of basic premise of... Um, of dignity again uh, and being open to inclusion. So opening your mind and your heart to difference is very, very important. Uh, and particularly for us in our population, but for different ethnicities, um, race, et cetera, et cetera. Being, having an open mind is part of getting to where you want to be in terms of this uh, universal dignity that I talked about, uh, that I talked about earlier. And we do put a lot of effort into our work in schools. We have this um, unified uh, champion schools program that exists in the US and around the world in many schools. And we're now, in fact, challenging governments to uh, step up and to support inclusion and diversity and to use our programming as a lead in achieving, uh, in, in achieving a more inclusive school or a more inclusive uh, community. And basically what the schools program is, is people with and without intellectual disability coming together in a in a in a friendly sporting environment to play to learn from each other and in that play and learning 
to uh, discover that we're more alike than we're different. I think that's very well put, actually. And I was thinking, how could we truly understand? And I guess, as you say, it's about looking for how we're similar, looking for the things that we can do as opposed to not doing, which seems a bit of a semantic thing, but it's changing how you see things, isn't it? It's changing your framing, how you want things to be. And I get a funny feeling that if you're more inclusive and you ask the right questions, there will be more similarities than than differences. Sure, there will. And we find this over and over again. I often, often uh, in speeches that I do, a quote, I, uh, I quote a mother who said, I wouldn't change my son for the world, but I would change the world for my son. And I just thought it's just such a beautiful way of you know, inviting people to come see my son. Our son uh, is a person with uh, Down syndrome. But just to invite people in to come and see. And and again, that's part and parcel of what we do with Special Olympics, particularly at our big events that you spoke about at the the start of the podcast. Um, They're really a highlight for us, a showcase for us, where we can invite the public uh, in and have them see and have them interact and provide those encounters which are critically important to people understanding it's like experiential learning you know if you want to learn something uh, you you go you walk the walk you go that way you know um at the moment i'm trying to learn um ice skating uh, actually and it's only by getting I can do everything but until I just get on the ice and start uh, that courageous action uh, of putting one foot in front of the other and not being afraid to fall down you know it's exactly the same thing so the experiential learning that we can provide for uh, for 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 people without intellectual disability is uh, is a great pathway towards uh, understanding the person first, seeing the person first for what they can do, not what they can't do. And we see Special Olympics athletes at their best when they're in competition uh, because they just strive more than any other population that I know. They strive to do the best that they can do in everything they do. And that transfers actually into the workplace. We have a number of uh, Special Olympics athletes that work with us at headquarters. We have a number of athletes that work all around the world in our uh, regional offices, in our program offices. And they they bring so much with them uh, in in helping others. And, and, And they're great. They're they're brilliant workers. So it also, you know, it it makes really good sense to hire people with intellectual disability because of the skills. They learn, as we all do when we participate in sport, we learn courage, we learn determination, we learn uh, grit, we learn how to be part of a team, we learn how to turn up on time for training, um, we learn resilience. So these are all the things that any of us that participate in sport will recognize as skills that we've learned through sport. And it's exactly the same with uh, Special Olympics athletes. And they can use those skills and they do use them very effectively uh, off the playing field as much as they do on the playing field. Well, when I was doing some looking into Special Olympics, I realized that it isn't just about the games it's not just that event that everyone seems to see alongside the olympics and it's televised and all those things i realized that there's a lot more that goes on than just the the main events that that we all know and love and love to see what else do special olympics get up to because when i was looking there's a lot i couldn't really fit it into one word or even one sentence what what you get up to so for those that don't know what do Special Olympics do outside of the World Games? Yeah, well, as I said, we're that year-round program uh, existing in communities all over the world, and uh, we provide opportunities through sport for our athletes 
to be leaders. Ultimately, that's what we want to, to do with the, that's where we want to be with the organization. Um, and I feel like we, we really um, have come a long, long way since I started my involvement with Special Olympics, which was straight out of college as a teacher, got involved as a volunteer. I was a volunteer for 10, for 10 years. And then back in those days, that was the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, then it was definitely a program for people with intellectual disability, where we provided a service. We provided coaching and opportunities for athletes so that they could um, enter into competition, show their skills, abilities, et cetera, et cetera. But that was mainly our uh, raise, reason to be and to uh, bring that sense of um, joy and happiness uh, and hope uh, to their families and the wider community. Special Olympics has evolved over the time, over the over those number of years through the programming that we're offering and through the different uh, innovations that we've introduced to become an organization uh, which now is more led by the athletes. So it's not it's it it is an organization that we still provide a service, but it's also an uh, an organization from which we learn as as people a great deal um, about inclusion and about empathy and about all of the things that I've been mentioning. Uh, so that's that's certainly a, a departure and a really welcome one for Special Olympics. And we see our athletes being leaders in all sorts of different situations. Uh, many of them are involved in leadership roles and organizing our big games, uh, in uh, designing and creating logos, in being volunteers, in um, serving as officials at sports uh, events, etc., cetera, uh, as well as many other things that they do outside of uh, Special Olympics um, as well. So I mentioned our unified sports uh, program, champion schools program as well, and what that entails. We also have an extensive and comprehensive health program because there are huge disparities that still exist uh, for people with intellectual disability in getting the proper care that they uh, deserve and that they should uh, have. And this became very acute and apparent to us during uh, COVID when they were oftentimes the last to receive uh, treatment or the last to um, you know, to, to, uh, to, to get the, 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 uh, you know, the last to get the the injection. Um, so the 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 program in health, we look upon it in in four in four different pillars. One is uh, prevention. So what can we do to ensure better health? So much of our programming through health and fitness, through our Fit5 um, program that we offer and that we offer during COVID and many other um, activities, that uh, fitness activities, as well as healthcare opportunities that we offer our, um, of our athletes. Access, um, access is another one, just providing ensuring that they have access uh, to services that they need. And a lot of times that involves training. So training healthcare workers, training clinicians, training medical professions to understand people with intellectual disability, to listen to them when they present in their offices uh, and to respond in a way that they can uh, understand and appreciate. So we do a lot of uh, training in uh, in healthcare in healthcare settings, both in service training and out of service uh, training in our colleges. We're just introducing a virtual uh, university called the Galasano University because we get huge support from one of our donors, Tom Galasano, and um, that that will offer a lot of uh, opportunities opportunities uh, digitally and otherwise for uh, for training as well through the through the university. So that's what we we also have an advocacy part to all of our work and it's the same in health. So we um, 
try to change systems. So we um, are advocates to government and um, other medical organizations to try and, um, you know, change, change attitudes, change perspectives and uh, provide more open doors for uh, to ensure good health of people with intellectual disability. And then finally, we have uh, an inclusive leadership program as well, where we bring leaders together, um, leaders with intellectual disability, without intellectual disability, we don't see the difference, and that they learn together how to be more inclusive and how to understand each other. So those are really the, uh, the the four pillars, if you like. We do uh, sport, health, uh, unified champion schools, which is a, our what we call our education program, um, and um, inclusive leadership. Let's talk World Games because that's the more prominent thing that at least I'm aware of, and I'm sure lots of people listening will also understand that the. The games is the thing that's probably most well known to people even without intellectual disability as well and I wonder what actually goes on behind the scenes because if I'm right it's on similar to the Olympics where I could be wrong is it yearly or every four years like the Olympics? Yeah it's every four years alternating between uh, winter games and uh, summer games so I mentioned before that the next um World Summer Games are in Berlin this year in uh, June. We, I think it's June 17th to the 24th. We have uh, 7,000 athletes from 190 countries, 26 sports, uh, 3,000 coaches, 20,000 volunteers, um, thousands of members of uh, national and international media and uh, thousands of spectators as well that will uh, attend uh, the event. Uh, so it is in that, in, in, in terms of its uh, numbers and scale and size, yes, you could say it's very like the Olympic Games. But in terms of the ethos and the philosophy and what we do, it's very different from the Olympic Games because uh, it is not about the fastest uh, person in the world. It's about the, the fastest and the greatest within your own ability. Uh, so all of our athletes are uh, ability grouped and they're pre-ability grouped uh, and they're put into competitions where they're very similar in terms of um, what they can run, what they can swim, you know, how, how they play, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and, and then we organize the competitions based on that. So you could have in the 100 meters, for example, you could have end up with 10, 12 athletes winning a gold medal, depending on the division that they're in, um, in the same age group and depending on the division they're in. So basically that's the big difference between um, a Special Olympics competition and an Olympic Games competition, where is, if you're, you know, participating in the Olympics and you come first, you're the fastest and you're the winner and you get the gold medal. It's the fastest in your range, in your ability range in Special Olympics. So the, the um, you know, the motivation is there to succeed, to improve, to develop, to be better, to be the best. Um, but it's a different uh, ethos than we have. What actually goes on on the lead up to an event like this because even small events that i've had the pleasure of speaking to people about they start at least a year ahead some people look two years ahead how big of a deal is the organizing of an event like this where you've got to get sponsors athletes countries volunteers so many different moving parts and yet you managed to to bring it all together for the event. So what actually goes on? How much work does it take? 
Yeah, it it's a huge, huge effort. I was the CEO of a World Games that we held in Ireland in 2003. So I have firsthand experience as to um, just how challenging it is. It is such a massive, massive um, logistical and operational uh, feat to be able to uh, put on a war games and it's getting more difficult because it's getting more expensive and with inflation and everything at the moment the the costs are getting higher and higher so therefore we're now beginning in the last couple of years to uh, introduce our bid process much earlier so we're now looking at bids for um, 2031, say, for example. Um, so that we're giving the whoever then wins the right to host the games ample opportunity to organize and to raise the funds and to do the whole operational and logistical um, activities that need to be done. Uh, so in Berlin's case, uh, they've been working on the games for the past four years. So they've been putting their teams together, um, working out their budgets, raising their funds, um, you know, recruiting all the volunteers, training all the volunteers, um, organizing opening and closing ceremonies. And this all you know, has a, a long, long lead in time if you want to do it uh, properly and to provide world class uh, sporting and other experiences for the athletes, the coaches, the delegations and for the people who come to um, have that encounter and to experience uh, a games uh, as well. So it is a mammoth undertaking. And I was actually saying to somebody yesterday, it's there is about 10 or 12 like major big uh, events within that massive big uh, event. Because if you take an opening ceremony, you know, where you would have a stadium full with 80,000 people and you're providing a spectacle and all the athletes have to enter the stadium, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that in itself is a massive um, organizational challenge. Uh, and so many other, uh, I mean, you know, recruiting 20, 25,000, 30,000, in my case, in 2003, we had 30,000 volunteers and recruiting and training and motivating and providing uh, uniforms and scheduling for all those people just is another uh, huge task uh, within a big event. So that gives you some flavor as to the extent of uh, organizing such an event. But it is a real showcase, you know, and if you ask athletes uh, what do you enjoy most about Special Olympics, they'll say participating in, in games. Uh, obviously, it's everybody's desire to get to a World Games. Not everybody does because of the limited number. We have uh, the most we can cope with is roughly about 7,000 athletes. Uh, and that's why we want to keep improving our offering at local level. So how can we make our local programming better? Because that's where, where the majority of our athletes will get their experiences and get to showcase their talents and abilities at local games, at regional games, at national games. Um, so we, we're constantly working uh, and honing what we're, our offering is at that local level so that the athletes can experience uh, a high quality, world class experience for, for them and also local communities coming to uh, watch them and encouraging local communities to come out and support uh, the local programme. I imagine there's a lot of different processes that disappear at that scale like sometimes smaller things just don't work like the system breaks so once you've got ten thousand volunteers maybe something might work maybe the system might work maybe the way of recruiting training might fit but then entering the world of okay now we have thirty thousand of these to recruit train manage organize set schedules for is there anything that would work at a smaller level that stops working or the system just breaks under the, the sheer scale of it? Is there anything that you can point to that maybe only works at 
higher levels? Um, well, I think if you put it's if you put the systems in place at whatever level, uh, it it well the theory is that it should work and um, and and testing as much as possible as well in advance is a very good idea. And we always before our world games we would have a test event the year out, and that might be a national games in that city or in that uh, country. Uh, and we would test some of the systems to whether it's the volunteers or language services is another big one or technology is a huge one. And we would test those things that uh, we might be fearful of whether they will actually work on the day or not. But I, I think the system applies at all levels. You know, if you're organizing a local games, you equally want to be as vigilant about recruiting and training and motivating and assigning your volunteers uh, on a much lower scale, of course, than um, than a world games. And then with the best organization and planning in the world at any level, you have to ensure that, that uh, you have contingencies uh, there just in case something happens, you know, like we had COVID, um, like in 2003, uh, during nine weeks before the games uh, began, there was an outbreak of SARS around the world. So we had to, you know, completely dedicate our time to that and how we were going to get over that, particularly countries where there was seems to be a high there seemed to be a high level of SARS outbreak, how we were going to manage those, try and ensure they still got to come, what um, systems and policies we were going to put in place. So you never know right up to the last moment what's going to happen to scupper your plans. So therefore, you need to have a contingency built in to be able to deal with that. And uh, really, we're ever grateful that we did do that. We had a great project manager who absolutely insisted on that. And therefore, everything was well organized in the end. And every team that had signed up were able to attend even the countries with SARS. And we looked after the safety of everybody. That was our first priority. So what do you enjoy most about your work with Special Olympics? Is there anything that stands out above the... I imagine it's hard. It's a hard question to answer. But what would be your most enjoyable part of it? It's a really tough question, honestly, Michael, because um, I am passionate about Special Olympics. I love Special Olympics. I've been involved all my working life in the organisation uh, I love to see um, athletes and their progression. Uh, I love the joy and the fun and the love and the warmth that they bring to any situation, to any setting. Um, so I, I, I get so much from the interaction. Uh, and that's why it's so wonderful to be back in the office uh, again, because we have all of our athletes working there and th it just changes. It Something changes uh, when you experience and encounter a person with uh, intellectual uh, disability. And then I love when I see uh, when I see people change. When I see through the work that we do, people say, oh, I get it. I understand. You know, I am. Um, we were expecting uh, people like that to fit in uh, to our way of thinking, to our work. But of course, it's not like that. Uh, and we know that we've got to adapt and we've got to change. When that button clicks, uh, it's a revelation. And for the person themselves, but for me as a, an observer thinking, yes, our programming is working. People are actually changing and we encourage more and more and more uh, to do that and to be like that. I like how purpose and meaning driven that the Special Olympics has become. Like you're not just about sport anymore. You've grown, you've expanded, you've use your experience at the organization to to branch out in almost like a a needs-based and preventative-based 
measure that you've gone through, okay, we're about sport, but then how much of an impact can we actually make if we don't educate people as well and provide services at a more grassroots level, which makes me think, were you always purpose-driven? Was that something that you've always had since you were a volunteer? I imagine the, the reason had to be just as strong then because you were a volunteer versus the, the CEO now. Like, how do you think about being purpose-driven? Yeah, I think it's it's really really important to be to have a purpose in life and to be purpose driven and I take a lot from our founder Eunice Kennedy Shriver um who was incredibly driven purpose driven uh, she was a founder and she had that real founder's mentality as well of you know just get on with the get the work done um we have so much to do. We have so much to accomplish. Uh, and uh, that's the attitude, certainly, that I take in terms of uh, the work that we do. We're, we should uh, never lay back and think, you know, our, our work is done. Aren't we doing OK? I hate phrases like that. Or I hate phrases like, oh, this is the way we've always done it. No, 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 it's not. I don't care whether it's the way we always have done it. It's how are we going to do it now? How are yeah. we going to make ourselves better? We should be constantly challenging ourselves to, to make ourselves better, involving and including uh, the voice of the athletes, the voice of people who may seem different and are not, but involving them in what we're doing and learning um, from them. And employees need opportunities to 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 bring their their company values. Every company that we've ever encountered, you know, whether it's Bank of America or Gallagher or Toyota or, um, you know, any of the, the big companies that partner uh, with us. And of course, we're ever grateful to them for that, uh, for that partnership. Um, it, they, they all have their own values. And how do you bring those to life? Well, I would say if you, if they get involved with Special Olympics, if they volunteer for Special Olympic events, if they open their minds to, uh, to difference, uh, if they have those encounters that I had when I started to work as a teacher in a special education setting and then through my work and volunteering, it does change something inside of you for good and uh, for the better. Uh, so employees in terms of companies, um, if, if they have that drive, you know, to uh, to do that and to get involved in things like that, it will make them uh, it will certainly uh, make them better, uh, both at what they do and in their own lives as well. Do you think that there's an easy way for companies, organizations, communities to be more inclusive because if you think about them changing to fit in which you want to try to avoid that the the box that they're in changing to fit them is that not difficult to do if a company has a way of doing things or a a culture or a system or a structure and then someone with a form of disability comes in and they don't fit in any way maybe it's about okay is that possible? Can companies and organizations be fluid in that way, do you think? Or if they can, how would you suppose they can do that? Sure, they can. Absolutely. It's like I said, we, we're not going to do it the same old way. We've always done it. We're going to be open. We're going to learn. And when somebody, um, you know, with an intellectual disability or Special Olympics athlete presents themselves in a company for work, they're bringing uh, they're bringing a difference uh, and they're through their interactions and then through the training that we provide, because we prepare companies um, for we, we we prepare both our athletes, first of all, for um, inclusive opportunities through our inclusive leadership training. But we also provide companies the opportunity uh, for training as well. And that training is mainly done by the athletes themselves because they're the best mentors. They're the best teachers. They can they they can tell in their words what it is that, that what their expectations um, are. And generally speaking, their expectations are to be treated the same as everybody else. But 
to be given equity, to be given the supports that they need to be the best that they can be. Uh, and, and that's what we do through Special Olympics. And that's what we encourage companies in all of our training to do as well, not to expect the person to fit in, but to look at the way you're doing, uh, you're organizing yourselves and to adapt uh, in accordance with that. It's and an I've seen that work. Part. That has worked in, in many companies like United Airlines, who are great supporters of ours. Uh, they now have customer relations people who are people with intellectual disability. Many of the training that's done is done by people with intellectual disability for, for their staff and their teams. So it, it, you, it's like that mindset. You know, you've got you've, you've to have an open mind and you've got to want to, to, to change as well. But change, of course, we all know change is possible. We also know that change is difficult. It's not easy and it does require effort. And you've got to be, you must do that. So walking the walk is very important. I've found that a lot of people speak about things like equality, let's say. They want to be equal in a way. But then in talking to yourself, Mary, there's a lot of talk about equity, which is different in a way because someone might need more support to be able to do the same thing. So it's like the way I would picture it is equality is everyone gets the same and then people will still end up at different points because of their own individual abilities, competencies, whatever it is. I've not seen you mention that, which is interesting because equity is less popular, but I get the impression that that's what's needed. Someone might need more to be able to do the same thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing because they should be given the chance to do that. They should be the, uh, given the opportunity to be able to do the same thing that someone that doesn't have a condition or disability can do. And it's a way of empowering them in a way, isn't it? Whereby someone needs Absolutely. more, so be it, versus everyone gets the basic level and then we judge them based on their ability to handle whatever training or education or ability that they have. Interesting, the difference between those two things. A lot of people strive for equality without realizing that equity could be how we achieve that. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, they are different. I mean, and you explain them very well in terms of what's equality and what is what is equity uh, and it's one thing to give the opportunity it's another thing to put the support services in place to ensure success and that's where we oftentimes fall down and you know you know people will say oh you know they're they're doing this and they're doing that but in many cases it's lip service honestly if i'm being honest um and it's not real equity. And, you know, they feel like just because I have, you know, hired somebody or, you know, um, invited somebody in to talk, I've, I've ticked a box in terms of diversity. Uh, no, no, no. We've got to be all in. So all in means providing the supports that are needed. And oftentimes, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive and huge supports it's things like listening the th some of the things i mentioned before empathy for people um in it just uh dignity that i talked about as well you know so it's that that's equity and it's 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 equality as well uh in providing all of those but yes it's 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 a more equitable and fair society is where we want to get to uh, rather than, yeah, the, the equality that you talk about. Now, while I don't actually agree with my next thing, I think it's worth just using the devil's advocate method for this one, Mary, is that a lot of the time people think that equality is giving them the same things without looking at the results or the outcome so equality's argument is everyone tends to get the same thing mm. equity potentially isn't fair in that the resources that they may need 
if that makes sense, like it's tilted in their favor in a way if they need more support, but then the result might still be the same as every other person in a society or country or or business. What do you say to the people that that think that way in that it's more work, it's harder, it's it's that kind of conversation where in their mind it doesn't feel like it's equal or or fair? Well, I would definitely disagree with that because I do think that uh, that one, it is it is fair and it is right that we should give everybody the opportunity. And actually, I'm not just talking about people with intellectual disability here. I'm talking about generally people in the workforce, because if you land somebody in a job or if you promote somebody to a managerial position, for example, because technically they're fantastic at what they do and they can't manage people, then if you don't provide the training for them to um, to to be a good manager and understand that there's a very big difference between what the skill set is required for a manager as opposed to what you're technically doing, uh, then we're failing that person. doesn't matter what whether they're a person with intellectual disability or not. We are failing that person. That's equity. Equity, to me, is providing the support systems for anybody to do the best job they can possibly do. And oftentimes we put people in positions and we don't train them. Uh, we, we, we don't listen enough. And it ends up oftentimes being a disaster because of that. Uh, so it it applies across the board, in my view, and companies that don't invest in that or organizations that say, well, we don't have the resources to do that are failing their people. Yeah, I, I completely agree, because as you say, if you're doing something for the first time, if you're good at your previous position or situation versus the next one you're probably going to have a couple of holes in your abilities or competencies you're going to have a hole somewhere and if you've been promoted or moved into that position they're setting you up to fail in a way aren't they if they put you in that position and you're not able to handle it because of that gap in your experience or or knowledge yeah absolutely absolutely i agree totally with that so would you ever envision a world where everyone is equitable and encouraging people to be equal no matter what their starting point is? Like Everyone's amazing if someone just provides a little bit more help to those that need it. Is that actually possible, do you think? Do you think we'll ever get there? Is it possible? I would say yes. Does it take a long time? I would say yes. Does it require enormous effort? on everybody's part, yes. Because you can have, in, a, in a, an organization or a company, you can have um, a leader, say like myself, that believes all that and that will, 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 will try to instill that in everybody else. But then you'll have people along the way uh, that for one reason or another, uh, don't want to do it or don't want to change, don't want to adapt, uh, you know. So it takes time. It just takes time and effort, sadly, to bring everybody along and to bring everybody to understand the, the importance of, um, of dignity, of support, of, um, of empathy. Uh, that it's not just all about technical skills. It's not just all about getting the work done at all costs. Yes, we've got to get the work done, of course, uh, but y- you've got to you've got to look at your skills in o- in other areas uh, as well and bring them to bear on your everyday work. I think things would be very different, Mary, if when people say get it all done at all costs maybe giving people the support that they need if they need it is part of at all costs like what if that was one of the costs should you not want to do that as well seems a bit weird to only include the things that 
that you're used to doing. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, that's a good way. I didn't even think about that before because <laughs> you do. Everybody says, "Yeah, get the work done at all costs." Uh, so, what are all costs? <laughs> It'd be worth asking people to define that. Actually, <laughs> what does all costs mean? <laughs> yeah, or even like, does okay, it mean well, tramping over everybody yeah. that you that you want to to get your way to get the job done? And fantastic, the job gets done, but you've hurt so many people along the way. Uh, you know, does that mean that you can never accept, uh, you know, bad behavior or um, or are people making mistakes over and over and over again? No, you can't. That's not acceptable either. But I think if you put your hand in your heart and say, I have provided all the supports that I feel was necessary to get that job done and then the person, you know, either, you know, doesn't live up to that expectation or, um, you know, makes the same mistake over and over again. I always say we're all entitled to make mistakes. That's how we learn. Uh, we learn from our mistakes. But gosh, if you make a mistake in an area once, that should be your learning. <laughs> so uh, you shouldn't repeat that again. And I would get very worried if that you know, if if there was a continual uh, recurrence of uh, mistakes, uh, that's different. That's different to uh, providing supports and equity and services. I wonder if there's a bit of a line that you cross from you've got the equitable support, you've got the extra things that you may need to be able to perform the job or the role or the, the sport in in a lot of other cases with athletes and things and yet they still can't quite get it to the standard that they would need as an organization company government society whatever the case is is there a line where you cross and think right we have still done everything that we can and it's still not quite what we need to to function or or get the job done or whatever it is is there a point where that's the case or do you think, no, there's still just a loophole in the support, in the education that they're giving that's causing the the inadequacy or the lack of standard or quality or whatever word people tend to use? Is there a point or do you think it still falls back on the company, organisation, community still has that responsibility to plug that hole themselves rather than hoping that the person does it in their own time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think dialogue is, you know, forms a very important part of, of that, you know, so talking to the person, spending the time with them or a group of people understanding more why it is they're not um, doing what's required or why they're not succeeding in a particular way. I think the continual check-ins, conversations, you know, it's not enough to say, Oh, I've I've given you the sports. I've done the training. Now, come on, you're on your own. Get the job done at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's about um, it's it's about understanding why the person's having challenges and um, and being able then to respond to that in as far as you can. So, you know, I think that's that's critical to success as well. I wonder where you perhaps had a very good failure, where you've had the failure, you've had to learn from it, and then you've been able to to bounce back or progress or learn and things like that. Have you had a a story or a failure that's that's like that? Um, in my work, uh, I'm sure I'm sure I have lots of uh, failures, and I'm sure I've made tons of mistakes uh, throughout my life but I I do tr- if that happens and I don't have an absolute example I should have um, <laughs> I I think when that happens whether it's a small mistake or uh, I can't think of a very large mistake uh, you know I I do learn from it I certainly try to uh to learn from it if I send out the wrong information to the wrong people you know something like that um I will have learned from that not to double check and not to do that again 
Um, I've learned to take a step back when it comes to writing emails and things like that uh, and not to shoot off an email, you know, because I feel a certain way at a certain time. I'll, <laughs> I will take the time and I will wait and I will reread my words and I'll think I'll try to put myself in the shoes of the recipient and think, what's it going to be like for them when they read this? So, so I try to be a little bit more thoughtful in that respect. I imagine you've got quite a few from ice skating, right? trying to learn something like that, where you've got this quick turnaround of like mistake and learning and you're back on the ice again or something like that. Like my... My patience definitely wins with certain things. Well, they're repeatedly slipping on the ice. Every time I try to ice skate, I get on the ice and I think, I can't feel my feet. I, I don't know where they are. I don't know what's going on. And every time I try and figure out how to do it, my head goes, but you can't move like that and expect to go forwards. Like somewhere down the line, my head always wins and I get impatient and I just... <laughs> I have micro give ups the entire time until I just get to the point where I just think it's probably just not for me. There's plenty of things <laughs> that I am okay at. Like I have played basketball, tennis, I'm reasonably okay when it comes to other things. But then I'm thinking ice, ice skating just isn't, it just can't be for me. There's, there's no way I, my legs can move like that and I can still, still pull it off. And I can't. And I have tried ice skating, Mary. I have. And, <laughs> A combination of the cold, my hatred for landing on my back multiple times per minute, really, because I am that bad, yeah. if I'm honest. It's not, yeah, it's so not am I, so thing. am I. Yeah, it's not, it's not irregular. I get all the time. And I just think, I, I if I was making progress, I maybe I'd think differently. Um, but it's very much like, God, like ice or, skating or, downhill. Or ice yeah, skating exactly. Uphill. It's yeah. definitely or like uphill, ice skating uphill. 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 Or you feel like, you know, you go out one day, one evening and you think, um, oh, yeah, I'm not doing too bad now. You know, it's uh, I can get around. Uh, I can move a little bit more away from the, 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 the sides. And and then you go out the next night. And you just seem to have lost it all. You, you're back <laughs> holding on for dear life again, afraid of your life. You're going to fall. And it takes you another 15, 20, 25 minutes to get over that and to get round again. So um, I am full of perseverance and I'm a very determined individual. Sometimes I'm my own worst enemy, 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 to be honest, because I will prove to myself all the time that I can do it, no matter what it is. I'll think, yeah, I can do that. I can, I can take that on. I can see how I can find my way around that. And so this is one of those situations. Nobody has challenged me. Nobody has asked me to do this. I've decided, new year, what am I going to do? I'm going to learn a new skill that's, that's difficult for me. And, and so it is. Like when I go in and ask for my ticket and I'm looking for a seniors, they're sort of looking at me going, really? <laughs> you want to do this? <laughs> and then I'll turn up the next time. They'll say, oh, you're back. They go, yes. And I'm going to be back more and more and more until I learn this. You fell over all those times. I've been checking the CCTV and we keep being baffled that you come back the next day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they obviously are checking me out. <laughs> I wonder, just before we finish this conversation, Mary, it's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed having you as a guest. And I wonder what has been the biggest lesson that you've learned from Special Olympics athletes. I don't know if you engage with them. I don't know if you've had the chance to interact. But what would be the biggest lesson that, that you've learned from them? Uh, by a mile, I've learned to have an open mind to most things. Absolutely. If they've taught me one thing, they've taught me to 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 be to be open, to be welcoming, to be accepting, uh, to be appreciative, to be grateful, uh, to be joyful. Uh, they they've got in spades, they've got all those things. All those things just seem to come naturally to them. 
the love, the warmth, the fun, the engagement, the openness, the tell it as it is, you know, uh, they'll get out and dance to the moon and be happy and joyful. And the rest of us are like standing in the corner, afraid to take a move or, you know, gets back to the ice skating. You're afraid <laughs> Uh, you're afraid to do it because you're afraid people will be laughing about at you and thinking, look at that old one trying to do this, that and the other. But no, it's like they're just do it. Just get up and do it. And I've learned that and so, so much more in my life that I'm really so grateful, so honored to have had so many experiences, joyful moments um, throughout my life and continue to do so uh, now as well with the many friends that I have uh, that are a part of Special Olympics or that have retired from Special Olympics now but involved in other areas. Um, the athletes that I was coaching, I was a gymnastics coach and I just liked the athletes, to, well, to be the best when they went to competitions. Uh, so there was this one athlete, Risha, who came, or one person with intellectual disability who came to me and um, actually my husband worked as a teacher as well. And he sent Risha to me because he knew I was into gymnastics and said, oh, you know, this this girl looks promising. She should you should you, you should have a look. Um, so Rita came anyway, and she was brilliant. She was great. She was full of enthusiasm, honestly. And at that point, she worked in a sheltered workshop and she um, she lived in a sheltered community um, as well. So quite an insular um, uh, life, really. Uh, and she managed her way to, you know, be able to get the bus from the south side of Dublin over to the north side to me, you know, through training, uh, etc. And she was able to do it by herself. And then she just went on to train incredibly hard in all aspects of gymnastics, whether it was on the floor, whether it was um, on the on the beam, uh, on the vault, whatever. She was just fantastic. Uh, and she qualified to participate in the all around uh, competition in the World Games in 1989. I think it was in South Bend, Indiana, and she competed and she won the gold medal. And it was just an incredible experience uh, for her. But the point is not so much the winning of the medal and the going and the achievements for her, but her participation in gymnastics gave her gave her the confidence and the determination that she was very capable of to understand that there was a life outside a sheltered workshop and a sheltered community living and she went on from um working in a sheltered setting to working in an employment in a hotel in the city uh, which she only retired from a couple of years ago. And she went on to live totally independently, which she does today, because I meet her every time I go back to Ireland, uh, in an apartment uh, on the north side of Dublin. Uh, so she was able to, you know, her whole life really was transformed by by the confidence and the education and what she saw and how she excelled through sport and the feeling that if I can do it here, I can do it in other parts of my life as well. And OK, I need to figure out how to pay my bills and how to live independently. I remember having these conversations with her and um, she she got there. She got but she did get the supports, you know, she she still had a social worker. She still has a social worker who helps her in certain situations that she may need it. And she's got supports like myself and others as well. So but but just with that, you know, giving somebody the opportunity, giving somebody the chance, you know, there's I think it's uh, Emily, Emily Dixon that has the poem. You'll never know how high you are till you are asked to rise uh and and then you'll i can't remember the exact words but then you actually 
excel, when you're given the chance to rise and the supports, you can achieve great things. I do think that those that think that they can tend to do a lot more as well. Like the people that think that the situation is too much for them, they can't possibly see a way out. Those are the kinds of people that really struggle versus those that are given the opportunities you said, those that can see things in a, this is what I can do kind of a way. They, they have that snowball effect, don't they? It's the little thing that starts to get them into the frame of mind to try and to not stop and have this can-do attitude that we've been talking about for the entire conversation. So mm. there's a lot mm. to be said for giving people the start that they need and then hopefully the way that they see things and think about things will hopefully change because I'm sure you've got countless people that are still struggling that may still struggle because they don't think that there's a way that they can do something with their yeah. limitations or whatever the case is. Some people think they can do more, others are not so sure. That tends to be the, um, the tipping point for me, like whether someone will try and put the effort in or whether someone someone won't. Yeah, yeah. And that's confidence and courage as well. Everybody can do something. Uh, and, you know, in the case of Rita that time, it was, first of all, seeing, um, seeing that she had a potential talent in an area and then sending her in the right direction and then the training and her enthusiasm and passion and willingness to be the best she could be all that combined um you know you could do all the training but if the person doesn't have the the drive then to drive it forwards um success might not follow uh so it's it's a combination of all those things that make it the person i guess yeah yeah definitely i completely echo that and mary it's been fantastic those that want to find out more about you so special olympics pretty much everywhere what about yourself are you on social media websites that kind of thing Where yes can i am find yeah out about you? i'm on linkedin people can find out more about me on linkedin i'm on facebook i'm on instagram on twitter so i've got all the all the various social media platforms um and people can get in touch with me uh, in that way as well no problem if people wanted to enter the Special Olympics world a bit more, maybe they've been watching it on TV and they think, you know, I, I would like to get involved, whether it's mm. donations, whether it's volunteering. They just want to up their commitment to Special Olympics. How can people do that? Well, first, we would encourage everybody to do that. It's very, very simple. Uh, our Special Olympics website, www.specialolympics.org, uh, is a great uh, source and resource uh, to find information and to get information about your local program, about how you can become involved, how you can donate. Um, you know, there's various different trainings, etc., that you can undertake once you get in touch with us. So, yeah, they we welcome we we want to have more people we we invite people to join us uh, in our movement and by joining us in our movement the richness that people will receive from special olympics athletes and their families as well uh, is something that's very special Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Mary, thanks so much for joining me, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thanks so much.